Hopefully by the time we're done today, you will feel better equipped and liberated to make some of those very difficult life choices and know that you're tracking along with God's plan for your life. Tommy and I have certain movies that we like to go and see together. The movie that we're going to watch pretty soon is called Real Steel. Hugh Jackman plays this down-and-out boxer who is about to challenge the title, except that the whole boxing world has changed when they replace boxers with robots, 2,000-pound robots. And so his opportunity for redemption is that they find a discarded robot called ATOM, Adam, and Hugh Jackman teaches him to box, and they begin winning fights. Well, in, in the big fight, the mechanism for speech is broken on the robot, and so they have to revert back to what's called shadow mode, when the robot only responded to every move that another boxer made, a fighting avatar, so to speak. And, of course, the, the whole thing is that now they've become one. Hugh Jackman swings, Adam swings, and he uses all of his experience, and it's a big climactic event at the end. So where does that have to do with uh, God's will and our will? Well, Adam, the, the robot, who is basically boxing as Hugh Jackman boxes, is in some ways what you and I would be with God were it not for this incredible gift called our free will. We'd just be automatons. We would basically be just doing what God programs us to do. And so, when we begin to question and challenge God about why he allows people to do bad things or to make their own choices in a way that's inconvenient to our life and painful for us, we have to remember that that's just one piece of a greater package that makes us human. There would be no humanity without this gift to choose. We would simply be moral robots. And who would really want that existence? So, as we begin landing this series, we really have to finish understanding who we are in God's eyes, how his sovereign will fits in. At the same time, within that sovereign will, God is perfectly pleased to allow you and I to exercise this incredible gift called our will. And then I've got one more piece at the end that I think is going to be the, the, the plot twist that I think you'll find very interesting. And so hang in there with me as we go forward. But let's go back to last week. We chose three aspects of God's will. The first is God's sovereign will, and that is his plans and purposes for his creation that we cannot hinder or change. The great story of creation is not our story. We're a subplot in a much greater story, and that's God's story. He sits at the center of it all. Paul wrote in the book of Romans that from him and through him and to him are all things. So when the Bible speaks about God's sovereign plan, it's talking about those things, most of which we aren't even aware of, that have to do with God's greater purposes for all of creation, including you and me. And none of it can be hindered by our rebellion or by our cooperation with it. Because what God purposes to do, he says, that I will do. What we can do with relation to God's sovereign will is to simply live under it. That's what James was saying when he says, instead of making our plans and just presuming that we can make them, instead we ought to say, if it's God's will. That's the whole idea of submitting to God's grander picture. The second aspect of God's will is God's moral will. This is the part of God's will that he has clearly and overwhelmingly communicated to us, primarily about our beliefs and our behavior. 
And it would be foolish and, frankly, pointless for us to try to get God to engage with us on the decisions that matter to us, you know, the career choices, college, graduate school, mate, town to live in, kids, those huge issues that we really want God's attention and help with. It's ridiculous to think that suddenly we can engage God on those levels and totally ignore the overwhelming will of God as to how we are to believe and how we are to go about living our lives. We seek wisdom from God, but we cannot spurn the wisdom he's already given us. That's God's moral will. And then the third area, we call God's personal will. And those are those passages in Scripture where God reveals his heart for people as individuals. We can be sure, according to Scripture, that God has you in his mind. He has uniquely engaged you and called you out to be his. He has uniquely gifted you and purposed a life for you. So God does have a personal plan for your life. Let me just review that area in particular. I think it's important that we understand it because this is where we get confused and we look at God's personal will as if it's this map that's written in indelible ink. We're just robots, and if we get off the map, we're, we're out of God's will forever. That isn't what the Bible speaks of when it talks about God's personal will. It's not a map on that order. I grew up as a pastor, a child, my grandparents were committed Christians, and we would often go to their little church in Saraville, New Jersey, Old Bridge Baptist Church, and there were people there that over the years we got to know pretty well. I'd walk away with really red cheeks from all the tweaking I'd get from all those folk. And one woman, probably in her 40s, every time she got up to give testimony, this was her story. Never got past it. When I was a young woman, God called me to be a missionary, and I said no. I spent the rest of my life living outside of God's call in my life. Young people, don't ever make that mistake. And I, I, thought, I feel so bad for her. Who gave her that idea that God gives you this one moment in time, and if I don't get this right, it's all blown up? And what about her kids who kept hearing her story over and over again? So we were the mistake we weren't in God's plan? And what about all the lies she touched in all the years that would come? I See, I, I don't think that's exactly how God works it. So when we look at God's personal will, we need to see these general ideas without going back and pulling out the Scripture passages this week. God's personal will for us is far more about relationship than it is about accomplishment. His primary will is that we know him. And we know him through Jesus Christ. The second thing about God's personal will in the Bible is that it's far more about who we are than what we do. God's will is far more about the kind of person he's turning you into in order that he can use you than where and how he actually uses you. That's pretty clear in the Bible. Now, are there times when God says it's really important that you end up at a certain place, yeah. But don't you think if God's sovereign, he's going to make sure that takes place? If we're walking in his path, don't you think he's going to worry about that so we don't have to? See, he's far more concerned about our relationship with him and the work he's doing in our life. Third, if you come at God's word fresh and just look at it in terms of how we're to live our lives, you will find overwhelmingly God's far more concerned with how you go about living and how you make those choices 
than where those choices end up taking you. Because if you go through a process where you are making choices in a godly way, you're going to make godly choices. God's going to direct your paths. That's the book of Proverbs. Turn there with me. Very familiar passage, but let's go there anyway. It's Proverbs chapter 3. Now let's come to it with some fresh eyes with some of the things we've talked about. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then he will make your paths straight. The old King James says he will direct your paths. But this is a far more accurate translation. The picture that's being created by Solomon is that God literally straightens out the path. And how do we get to that way where we're going along with God and the options become defined for us so that the path is clear. How do we do that? We do it, according to Solomon, in three ways. First, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's about a radical submission to God. Radical submission to God. His sovereign authority over your life. You lean not in your own understanding. You step back and you don't quickly jump into a choice based on what we called last week your choice reflex. You know, all those needs and passions and, and hurts and experience in your life and longings that make you just want to jump quickly into a decision that will meet those needs on a short-term basis. We need to be suspicious. We don't lean so heavily on them. Lean heavily on God, less on ourselves and our experience. And then he talks about in all your ways, in everything you do, you need to be acknowledging God. Not just in the one decision that matters to you. It may matter to you, but that doesn't mean it matters to God at the level that it matters to you. Everything God reveals to us matters to him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then what will happen? He will straighten the path. It's interesting that at the end of our study, four weeks later, we come to a very different place than we began our study when we talked about the complexity of choice simply illustrated in the modern experience of buying blue jeans. We started saying life is so full of complications that we're literally paralyzed by it. The overload of options does not lead to greater satisfaction, but a greater sense that we haven't found the perfect match and never will. And we go from that to saying, no, if we track along with God, there's this way of narrowing down the options eliminating all that's useless in terms of uh, the choices that are out there and bringing it down to a place where the path is more clear day by day. That's what we're looking for. And that's what God primarily promises you when he talks about his personal will for you. It's the path that he's going to straighten out for you. You will not find in the Bible, I believe, anything that suggests that for all of God's children, he has every single turn in the road, every option mapped out. Because if he did, where would freedom of choice be? Where would man's will be? So there must be a way to look at God's sovereign will and honor it and live within it that still honors and exercises this incredible gift called our will. And that's what we're going to look at now. And that's our free will. Now, let me just talk to you about this. I cannot bring you to a passage in the Bible that specifically talks about 
our free will as a doctrine. In the same way it teaches God's will, God's sovereign will. The Bible is just filled with, it's saturated with teachings on God's sovereignty and exercising his will over us. When we talk about man's free will, it's more of an observable reality in the Bible and in life than it is a doctrine that the Bible makes effort to teach. The reason why you need to understand that is because historically we've elevated the idea of man's will to be a competitive idea with God's will when in fact they're not even in the same league. And that's the reality of Scripture. So now, as I come to this, I recognize that some of you come from traditions theologically. You were either Calvinistic or you were Arminian. And I want you to understand, that's a man-made debate. And it's not to say that it's not important, but I believe if you just were able to put aside all that and just come to Scripture, just see it you'd recognize that you don't see this idea of God's will, man's will, set up in a way that we have to choose between them. What you see is a sovereign God who is at work over all of creation, and that is taught as doctrine. And what you see is the reality throughout Scripture, that underneath that sovereignty, we choose. But it's not either or, never was. It's God is sovereign. And within that sovereignty, we have to learn to glorify him with the choices we make. So let me just pull out some of these ideas. First of all, we do have freedom to make choices. It's implicit. It's clearly recognized. It's part of humanity. Second, we are responsible for the results. We need to stop looking at this ability to choose as simply a God-given right and understand it more clearly as a God-given responsibility. You answer for your choices because if you didn't, You're not choosing. So we can't go along our life and say, God, I want freedom to choose, but when I blow it, I want you to step in and make sure nothing goes wrong. Then we're really not free agents. It's not even rational to be mad at God for letting things happen in our life that are just the natural result of our choices and the choice of other people. It doesn't even make sense. We may as well be asking God to turn us into automatons. Let him throw all the punches and make all the moves. We can just check out. You see, we're responsible for the choices that we make. But third, not all of those choices, in fact, the vast majority, are not about right or wrong. So the question is, as we begin moving up the complexity of choices, when does it become a right decision or a wrong decision? Let's explore that just a little bit. This morning, I do the same thing I do every morning early. I go into my closet and I see what's clean and made these choices. Now, you could say that taste is at stake here. (laughs) You could say style is at stake. But I doubt morality is at stake in this, right? I, I don't think I made a moral choice by choosing this outfit over khakis and a sweater. So, of course, this is the easy one. Okay, let's move it up a notch. Dating, college, marriage, missions, city to live in. See, we look at these things and we say, these are critical for us. But there's nothing in the Bible that says those things are really, for all of us, specifically critical to God. And so, if I'm going to rightly divide the Word of God, I need to tell you clearly 
what the Bible teaches and help separate out some of the mythology we've built on top of it. So, back to the thing last week that got me just a little bit in trouble. <laughs> that was this notion that uh, perhaps God doesn't have a specific person that he made just for us to be married, those of us that are, are going to be married in life, because the Bible doesn't say that. Now, does that mean that God doesn't work in bringing people together? Yeah, I think that you can always look back and see how our stories met and therefore see God's hand in our coming together, but that doesn't translate into the notion that I couldn't marry any number of godly women, honor God in that marriage, and live out God's greater will for me. Now, I say all that with huge, you know how much I love it. You know how much I love it. But to honor God's word is for me not to turn that into a fairy tale, because this isn't the Grimm brothers. This is the sovereign Lord who has given us his word to rightly handle. So here's what I want you to understand, that in my way of thinking, for most of us, we're so worried about making the wrong choice about all these issues that we get paralyzed and we can't move ahead. And if I could do anything, it's to free you from that thought so that you could recognize that what God wants you to do is make a godly choice in a life partner. What God wants you to do is make a godly choice about, about what you're going to do with your life and then do it for his glory. And trust that if the sovereign God is at work in your life, that you won't have to figure out how he's going to use it or where he's directing you specifically because God's God and you're not. And it's more as you look back that you're going to see more clearly. And that's the fourth point. We see God's specific plans for our lives most often in hindsight. So here's an example. We chose a little more than a year ago to set our sights on planting a new congregation in the city of Worcester. How are we doing so far? Almost a year later, and we're doing all right, and God's blessing, and we're seeing God bring people. Now, when Vit and I were praying, and when the other families who were part of our launch team were praying about it, I believe all of us were in different places as to the decision. Some were very certain on it. And I believe my wife was more clear about God's calling on it than I was. But eventually, we all made this choice. And I know that for all of those people who were very faithful and patient, so much of it depended on my comfort with this, my ability to say, yeah, we'll do this, and God's in it. And I did eventually come to that place, but I really struggled even in verbalizing it because what I lacked was this sense of youthful confidence in the call. So I went forward believing God was in it more by faith than I'd ever done before, believing that as we move forward, God would confirm. So it wasn't with complete certainty that we move forward, but as we have continued in obedience pursuing this path, God has confirmed over and over again. Now, I can't say even in that that God wouldn't have said plant one in Providence, plant one in some, some other city, and he wouldn't have blessed that as much. I don't know that. But what I do know is that God has blessed this. That I can say. And I cannot say because God has not verbally told me that this was the one path and the only path I could take. I can't say that. What I can say is that God has been in it and has proven that he will use it. 
and therefore I know I'm in God's purpose. Do you understand what I'm saying? We will most clearly see what God has done in hindsight. And sometimes it will be so clear that we'll recognize that the only way it happened was that God did it. But we will be able to look and see God's hand in all of it if we are trusting in the Lord with all our heart, not leaning on our own understanding, and clearly and constantly acknowledging him in everything we do. All right, so that is God's personal will, God's sovereign will versus free will. I like to think of it, and I know there's no perfect illustration for this, but I like to think of God's sovereign will as the boundary markers of the path forward for me. And rather than, I know that the Bible says the way is narrow that leads to life, but that's specifically about Jesus. That's what that's about. So I'm, I'm offering up the idea of a path as a different analogy, not the one that Jesus offered in terms of the gospel. There is only one way to heaven, and that's Christ. It's very narrow. But in terms of choices, see this as a different analogy, a different metaphor. I like to think of the path that God's talking about as just that. It's a path. And within it, I, I get to do this. Some people need to go just like this because that's how God wired them, but not me. I like motorcycles. I like to be able to do this. And I think that's where our will is liberated within God's greater will. We're living in submission to God's greater will, but we're enjoying this beautiful ability to make choices inside it and experience the pleasure of those choices. All right, so now let's pull this together. Let's go back and review uh, what we've learned in each week and then bring it to this point where we come up with a decision-making strategy, so to speak. So we started four Sundays ago looking at the complexity of life and how choosing has never been more difficult. And then as Christians, we have the added challenge of knowing God's will. Where we landed was in Deuteronomy 30 where Moses says to the children of Israel, I've laid it out very clearly for you. And it really boils down to two choices. It's always been just two choices, life and death, blessing, prosperity, cursing, destruction. And then he says, choose life. So this is God's call to all of us in our free will that we will, by habit, find within ourselves the motivation, the tools, the transforming work and presence of God, that by habit, the choices we make, even the ones we're not even thinking we're making, let alone the big ones that we wrestle with for months and, and expend a great deal of energy and, and, and anguish, from the ones we're not even watching to those big ones, all of them are in a pattern of choosing life, choosing blessing. And, of course, at the heart of that is Christ who said, I am the life. But that's the first thing we saw. The second week we looked at wisdom, the superpower for decision-making that God's given us. And how do we get wisdom? Well, the first thing we do is we ask. You have not because you ask not, and God gives abundantly. The second thing we do is seek and pursue God. Because all of wisdom, all of our knowledge of what is right and wrong, what is noble and good, what is the proper path for our life is found in the person and character of God. So our pursuit of him becomes the path to gaining wisdom. The fear of the Lord, which is reverential awe, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Last week and up until this point, we explored the big ideas of God's sovereign will, God's moral will, his personal will, and then how our free will plays in it. So all of those things matter, which is why I've done a very quick review as we come up to the first part of this process of choosing, and that is recognizing the path to godly choices. So let's say together, Deuteronomy 30, let's say it again so that we're all on board. Look what I've done for you today. I've placed in front of you life and prosperity, death and destruction, blessing and cursing. Choose life. This is the path. I want you to look at one more verse. We used it the first week to close the sermon, Psalm 32, 8. Let's again say this together. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. I intentionally underlined an important piece of this verse. I will instruct you and teach you. Boy, God, we really want that. Instruct me and teach me. In what? Listen to it. In the way you should go. You see the idea there? It's not, I'm going to instruct you in the person you should choose or in the job you should choose. Again, what is it he promises? He promises a path for us to walk on. If you're on that path, that's the first piece in being able to make godly right decisions because you're within the proper constraints of my will for you. So what does that path look like? I just want to point out four quick things, and they're questions to know if I'm on the path. First, are you pursuing a personal and transforming relationship with God. All these questions come from everything we've learned up until this point. So the first question to ask yourself, am I on the path? Are you pursuing a personal and transforming relationship with God? Second, are you submitting to God's authority over your life? Dying to self, living to Christ alone so that you might truly find life abundantly. Third, are you obeying what you already know is God's will for your life? How are you doing with that? Are you devoted to that? Are there areas that you know you're doing that Scripture has said you shouldn't be doing, but you're doing it anyway? Is the choice you're considering a choice that presumes that you're ignoring clear areas of God's will for your life? One area right now that really just baffles me about Christian young people is the whole sexuality thing that even on Christian colleges, there are kids that have convinced themselves that sex outside of marriage is okay. When Scripture is so clear about it. See, I don't know how you can be in a physically immoral relationship that you know is against God's will for your life and believe that you're on the path to godly choices. And I'm saying that strongly, but that is true in some way for all of us and in relation to whatever moral choice we're making. Please don't be on your knees asking God for guidance if you're not first on your knees begging him for grace and mercy and walking in his path. What's the other piece we're talking about here? Okay, are, are you regularly asking God for and pursuing wisdom? Are you becoming a lover of wisdom? as Solomon challenged his son in the book of Proverbs to become. I think these four questions help us confirm whether or not we're really on the path that God says, I'm going to teach you the way you should go. And, and within that, you're going to be able to follow my plan, make godly choices. Now, that in mind, here we go, just quickly, because I really don't think 
This is the big deal. I think everything we've taught about to this point is the big deal, being on that path. But if you're on it and you're at a point where you really need guidance in a specific decision, I think God does give us five tools that we can reference for some of those hard choices. The first is the Bible. Is the decision I'm considering consistent with Scripture? Is it confirmed by Scripture? What would Jesus think or do as I read him in the pages of Scripture? Will this decision help me know God more or serve him better? God's Word is the map. It's the only one we've got, and it's a really good one. The second, wise counsel. Proverbs 15, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. We need to find godly counsel. We need to find proven counsel. And we need to find the best counsel we can possibly get. So we're not just talking about sitting around coffee with your friends who are struggling like you are to make all those decisions and finding counsel among them. We're talking about seeking out people that you know will come with a different perspective, maybe a little more experience, who would be willing to say both what you don't want to hear as much as what you want to hear. Seek out godly, wise counsel. The third thing is we can look at circumstances in some sense to get a glimpse of what God has in mind. The problem is that circumstances don't necessarily help us understand the complete workings of God. And open doors don't always lead to God's plan. When I was just going crazy in college, saying yes to everything, my mom said to me, Tom, need and opportunity do not constitute a call. Life presents itself as a pile of open doors. Don't ever think that it's appropriate to say, God, I'm just going to keep walking through the doors until you close them. How many times have you heard that? How many of you have done that? Open door is an opportunity to pause and consider what God is saying in the moment and maybe to look at the choice process you're going through. But we can look at circumstances. We can pull them together and say, is there something here that God's arranging? Fourth, God's personal leading in our spirits. I do believe God directs our hearts. He inclines us. And I do believe we can pay attention to that. But be very careful because, as John says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. How do you test the leadings, the inclinations that we're getting? How do we test them to see if they're from God? First thing, are you on the path? Are you on the path? Are you in tune to what God's doing so that you can sense that the leading you're experiencing is the right voice? Or are you already listening to other voices in your head that are taking you all sorts of places? And what's another way to test the spirits? We always test the spirits by the Word of God. God will never speak to us in a way that he hasn't already shared with us in his word or that is contrary to his word. God's leading. And then finally, time and confirmation. As we go forward in faith, we need to do it with a little reverent fear about God and the future and know that as we go forward, we'll be able to look back and time will give us a clearer sense of what he's done. That is what I like to think of as a plan for godly choice. It's a set of tools you can work through. It's not rocket science, but it presumes that we're in the path. Now, all that being said, here's the twist. What do I do 
if I've done all of this, here's the final principle. If you are on the path to godly choices, that's those four questions we talk about. If you can say, by God's grace, not legalistically, because it's not something we can quantify, we just know that we're living and directing ourselves along this proper path as best we can. If I'm on that path, and if I've followed a good plan like the five tools we've talked about, if I've done all that, then here's what I suggest. Do what you want. Do what you want. Because ultimately, that's what we do anyway, isn't it? Well, that's consistent with how God wired us. The key is to be on the right path so that what I want is what God wants. That's Psalm 37, verse 4. Let's say it together. Take the light in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When I was a young boy, I thought, boy, it's that easy. I thought about all this list of things that I had desires for. All I got to do is delight in the Lord. It took me a long time to figure out I can't delight in all those desires and then turn around and delight in the Lord because my passions are owned by my desires. That's why the secret is seek God. When God is my delight, does that not equate to him being my heart's desire? And doesn't it follow then that if God is my first desire, he will gladly give me his desire, which is more of himself every day? And does it also follow that if God's heartbeat and mine are beating in unison, that what he wants is what I will find myself wanting? One of the great theologians in history is St. Augustine, and one of his most profound statements was this, love God and do as you please. He was a young man who lived a licentious and hedonistic life, and he found Christ. He was tr dramatically transformed by the grace of Christ. Today, his ideas of the church and the kingdom of God and the gospel shape all of us who follow Jesus. He was a gift of God to us. But how ironic that a man that lived completely for following his passions could turn around and say, you know, I'm still doing that. I'm still following my passions. I'm following my heart. But if I love God wholeheartedly, then all those passions are his. Love God. Do as you please. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'll help us to take great confidence in the fact that you know the plans you have for us, and they're safe in your hands. And as we follow and pursue you with all of our heart, first of all, you will be found by us. But even then, in following you, you will make straight paths for us in life. I pray for wisdom for every person in this room. I pray for transforming grace. I pray that they would come to a full knowledge of Christ, who himself is life, and through whom we find life abundant. I pray that they would feel a passion for you that owns them so deeply, that the very things that they seek and hunger for in life are the things that you would seek and hunger for them. And I pray that in finding ultimate and full delight in you, they will find delight in living itself with the great choices and variety. 
and that all those things might be from you and through you and to you for your glory. Amen.